Thanksgiving, and uh, I don't know that this is any cause for celebration, but this is the shortest text I've ever preached from, except one. Uh, I did Jesus wept one time, uh, which is the shortest verse in the Bible, in the, in the English Bible. Um, and, and today is, is only one word more. It's the verse from Colossians 3.15, and be thankful. Some verses or versions rather leave out the and, and they just say, be thankful. Now, it's interesting. My wife pointed this out to me in her devotion a couple of weeks ago, I guess, um, that Paul, in all of the things he was talking about, said, and just be thankful. Um, it's interesting that the context of this command to just be thankful came when Paul was talking about difficult topics like conflict resolution, like um, dealing with uh, difficult situation. He gave them commands. Some were positive, some were negative. Some great theological depths were brought to the mix. And then Paul summarized it. Uh, you would think this would be maybe in a PS later or in a more shallow part of the book, but he says, and be thankful. You see, Paul understood what we know but sometimes it's easy to forget. Um, he knew that there is a great power in thanksgiving, and thanksgiving opens some dynamics in our lives that wouldn't be there if we did not exercise thanksgiving. And uh, thanksgiving is more than just having manners. I remember one time that I was struggling with something that, uh, you know, I just... I know the Lord knows best, but sometimes I think maybe there are options that he hasn't thought about. And um, I was working through these options, and of course, I knew better. I'm kidding when I say that. But um, I said, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this. Even if you are not doing what I'm asking for, I trust you, and I'm thankful. And the Lord said to me, it wasn't a rebuke, but it was just a matter of fact, this was years ago. He said, you're not thankful. Well, I just thought that I had told him I was thankful. And I, I guess by my, you know, well, the Lord knows everything, but I was silent. I thought I had done a good job of saying I was thankful. And the Lord spoke to my heart very clearly. He says, you're not thankful. You are courteous. Your parents taught you manners. And you learn to say thank you, even if you didn't like the Christmas gift Aunt Matilda gave you. You learn to say thank you, even if you did not like what you were being, you know, moved toward. And he said, I want you to be careful because you're not thankful for this. You're still irritated about this. You're just being courteous. Well, that taught me something. And I, boy, I say it taught me. Saying something was taught to you implies that you learned. So I hope I learned. Uh, but I, I've learned that thankfulness is not always quite as easy as we think. But I also learned that it is far more important than we think. There's a spiritual dynamic appeared right in the middle of all of this. Do this. Don't do this. 
Realize what Jesus did. This is the way you need to relate to one another. Right at all, right in the mix with all of that. He says, and be thankful. Be thankful. It's almost like Paul was saying, this is a no-brainer. If all of this is going to work in your life, it will work because you were thankful. Now, he spoke that to the church that was going through persecution from the synagogue and the persecution from Rome and other various governments was not the first persecution, but it was beginning. By the end of Paul's life, it would be full swing. And he says to these people that are facing very difficult and impossible situations, he says, be thankful, Colossians 3.15, and be thankful. Now, Paul would always follow that motif in his preaching, and he got it, I believe, from the book of Deuteronomy, from Moses and Moses' approach to the children of Israel. I've preached, best I can tell, in 27 years of thanksgivings, 28 years of thanksgivings, um, really. Um, I think I preached on this passage maybe five times through the years to just remind us of the first thanksgiving in the wilderness and I talked to you about those things that uh, Moses gave Israel to be thankful for. And I'm, I'm not trying to preach an old message, but I'm saying this is a, a passage that you're familiar with. I've talked about this before, whether you are a, you know, somebody that's been here for just three or four years or somebody that's been here the whole time I've been here. You say Deuteronomy 2.7, that sounds familiar. Yeah, we've been there. We've been there. And Moses was, we, we celebrate it as the first Thanksgiving in the wilderness. Moses would tell them there were six things that they needed to be thankful for. And we'll refer quickly to those things. I'm not going to re-preach that message. But it's interesting to me that Moses was speaking to a people who were coming out of the most difficult uh, season. It was a season really of death. Oh, I know the Lord took care of them. He fed them with manna from heaven. He gave them water from the rock. I, I, I know that God gave them victory over their enemies, but they knew, they knew, um, you know, a, a preacher friend of mine said the other day, he said, how can you say we're under judgment when God is doing so many wonderful things in our nation? And I said, well, all you have to do is go back to Israel in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness had miraculous provision. They had miraculous victories. They had an unusual presence from God, a cloud that would cover them from the heat in the day and give them guidance, and a fire that would warm them at night and give them protection. I mean, if you want to see the grace of God at work, if you want to see the miraculous hand of God at work, visit Israel in the wilderness. But you have to also understand they were under the heavy judgment of God. That shows us that God, even when judgment comes, his steadfast love never leaves us. His mercy never abandons us. And a lot of us need to understand that a sign, God's anointing or God's assistance is never a sign of God's approval. Now, they can be connected. 
God did say that he would bless us if he was approving our lives. But if we're not careful, we'll think that just because God did A, B, and C, then that makes E, F, and, and G true. And that's not necessarily the case. They were under the heavy hand of God's judgment and they were living in the wilderness. Think about this. They were living in the wilderness <coughs> waiting for their parents and grandparents to die. That doesn't even sound like a promise from God, does it? I'll do this for you as soon as your parents and grandparents are taken out of the way. That doesn't even sound like God. And what we've got to understand is that God was showing them extreme mercy because God was that earlier generation had failed the Lord. They had, they had uh, struck out every time they came to bat. And God said, I'm not going to let you go into the land, but I will let your children go in. So yeah, they, they were leaving an incredibly tough time. And you say, well, those days were about past. Those, those funerals were over. Yes, but they were about to enter a land that was a land of milk and honey. It was a land of great blessing. But God said, I want you to know every foot of the land you're going to have to fight for. And everything that I give you, I will give you, but you have to dispossess the people of the land. So God was moving them from one tough season to another. And what God said, I want you as you make move from here to here, I want you to understand your life must be conditioned by thanksgiving and by gratitude because to win the battle that is ahead of you, you have to cultivate a thankful heart. And loved ones, I think that there's more of a picture for us than we might realize. We've had a rough couple of years. Good, a, good, a good year and a half has been rough. We've talked about that. We don't want to talk about that. We're ready to move on. And I understand we all feel that way. But loved ones, I think the biblical pattern, and Paul told us twice in the New Testament, that all of these things happen to Israel as an example to us, that we might learn from these things, that we might grow from these things. And I think as we get ready for God to do something special, we need to understand that there is a new battle that's ahead. He's promised us victory. There's a new challenge ahead that we will succeed in. There are new enemies that we may never have seen before, but God said, I've been working in the land all along. So we know that God is in control. We know that God is in charge. We know that God is able to perform that which he has promised. He's able to give to us everything that he has said he would give to us. He's able to deliver us from every enemy that has set itself against us. We know that. But we know that there's going to be a battle and we have to, as we learned this year, fight the good fight of faith. But we also need to understand that even as we prepare to go into the land, we need to cultivate the ability to be thankful. And loved ones, um, I think what's happened is in America, the church has controlled the culture for the better part of 200 years, even though not everybody was a Christian and even though not everything was right, the church had such an impact on culture 
and decency and morality. Even unbelievers felt the influence of the church. And now we no longer control that. So what has happened to us that God is purging from us, and it's a good thing because he loves us all. What he's doing is he is purging from us our initial response to this post-Christian America. We are angry at people that have walked away from what we set up for culture. I think what the church has set up for culture is good and right. Not everything has been perfect at any time in America. There's always been abused people and mistreated people. There's always been things that weren't done right. I know that. But America has always been seasoned with the grace of the church. And now we're not feeling that seasoning anymore. We've got to learn again what it means to be salt and light. And praise God, churches are learning that. But we are also learning that we, we don't start this campaign by anger. We, 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 we're not going to win a community that we hate. We're not going to touch the life of sinners that we find distasteful and we have disdain for. So God is, is humbling us. I started to say humiliating um, that might be a good biblical idea, but the way we use humiliation, that's not what God is doing. The biblical sense of humiliation, God is doing. He's taking away all of our crutches. But it's not because he wants to destroy us. It's because he wants us to begin to walk on him again. Uh, lean on him again. I'm sorry. I'm so thankful that when Jacob was wrestling with the Lord, he wouldn't let him go. And they are in this death grip, this bear hug, the angel of the Lord fighting with Jacob and they're going back and forth. And the, the, the Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go till you bless me. I know that was a physical fight, but he understood something that was going on in the spiritual. He knew that physical fight was representing something in the spiritual. He said, I won't let you go till you bless me. And it's interesting. You know what the blessing was? <laughs> it wasn't, okay, I'll double your crops. Okay, I'll double your herds. Okay, I'll, I'll get rid of Laban. I'll do all of that. No. He said, I won't let you go till you bless me. And so what the Lord did is he said, you want me to bless you? And Jacob said, I'm not letting you go till you do. And so what did God do? He broke his hip. You say, that's some kind of blessing. Well, it was because let me tell you, for the first time, Corey, will you come up here and be God? They're fighting, they're wrestling, they're, they're going through all of this. And he says, bless me, bless me. Just go ahead and say that. No, bless me. No, bless wait, you're bless God. You don't say that. Confused. I'll tell you what, let me be God. Okay. okay. <laughs> now say, bless me, bless me. Bless me, bless me. And God said, I'll do it. And what God did was... And for the first time in the fight, Jacob now leans on God. For the first time in the fight, because if, if he doesn't, he's going down. Thank you, Corey. For the, for the, he, he realizes now what God does is he puts me into a place where he's all I've got. 
and I have to lean on him. I'm sorry I got our characters backwards there for a minute, but um, that's what Paul learned with the thorn in the flesh. When I'm weak, I'm strong. My grace is sufficient for you. And loved ones, I truly believe this. I believe if we're not already there, and you know, I think, I think a lot of us are already there. But if we're not already there in the months that are ahead, God is going to continue to wrestle with us, not because he wants to crush us or destroy us. Listen, loved ones, if you feel like, well, God's just out to kill me. If God was out to kill you, you would be a grease spot on Bush River Road. If God was out to kill you, he's not out to kill you. He's out to get you to the point where you stop standing in your own strength and you wrap your arms around him. And that's the best place to be, but it's not the place any of us go intentionally. Nobody wants their, their hip broken. Nobody wants to be made to be dependent on anybody else. You know, as, as we get older, that becomes a fear. I don't want to be a burden to anybody. I, I don't want to anybody, I don't want to have to depend on anybody. But we're all probably headed that way unless God helps us. Um, but we, we, what I'm saying is we have a natural aversion. I don't want this. But in the spiritual realm, that is often the blessing of God when we come to the place where all we have is the ability to cling to him. Now, I think that's what God is after. Um, this is what Moses said to the people that were about to be um, faced with the greatest enemy they had ever had. He said, the Lord your God has blessed you in everything you've done. He's watched over your every step through this great wilderness. During these 40 years, the Lord has been with you and you have lacked nothing. Now you see on your outline, the central truth, or I think this is on your outline. I did a couple of versions. Is it on your outline? Okay. Um, in a season of skepticism and fatigue, this is the time for us to look back, dig deep, and settle some questions. I have felt for about two weeks the Lord saying that what he's doing in our church, and I, I suspect it's the same in other churches, he, he says it's time for us to rediscover our core, to rediscover what we are and who we are, and, to, and, and we have been, sometimes we've been blown back and forth by the opinion of culture. Sometimes we've been pushed back and forth by the opinion of culture. And some changes we made were good. Some changes were not good. Some expectations were, were realistic. Many expectations were unrealistic. But God is letting it settle now. And we need to reach the place where we rediscover the core of who we are. We need to rediscover the fact that we don't get our approval rating from the world. We get our approval rating from God. And loved ones, I want to set you free. You will need medication and lots of it if you are setting yourself to please every voice around you. You've got to find out what God is saying, and that needs to be the core of your life. You need to answer questions like this. Who will I serve? Who will I serve? And you say, well, I'm going to serve the Lord. Well, let me ask you this. Are, are we really? Or are we serving a watered-down version of the Lord? 
I think I said word, I meant Lord. Are we serving a watered down version of the Lord? Are, are, we, are we trying to find a way to, to serve the Lord without offending a culture around us that hates the Lord? Uh, and I think that's what the average church is trying to do. The average church is so afraid of being politically incorrect and the average Christian is so afraid of being controversial that we have forgot that for 2,000 years uh, around the world, it's not been that way in America, but around the world, the church has had to find the, the boldness and the courage to say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord and it's the approval of heaven that we're after, not the approval of organizations. And we've got to decide who we're going to serve. We have to ask this question. Will I sacrifice my children to a modern day Moloch? Um, we, we, I, I want to tell you, it was a master stroke by the enemy, the way he took abortion off the table in 2020 and made abortion nothing so that we would fight other battles, battles that needed to be fought. But loved ones, we allowed the enemy to rip abortion out of our hands when we were making progress on helping people get help from abortion and letting people know that there were other options uh, from, from abortion. And in the name of politics, in the name of some theologies, in the name of fear, in the name of culture, in the face of being bullied and in the face of government overreach, we have taken a step too far back and we've said by our lack of action, our children will be okay. And I want to remind you that when Pharaoh told um, Moses they couldn't leave Egypt, Pharaoh worked out a negotiation. He said, go, you can leave, go worship, just leave your children here. And loved ones, we have got to understand, we cannot leave our children behind. The born and the unborn, we cannot leave them behind. And we have lost the momentum that had been building for years to, to take a stand that made sense against abortion. We lost the momentum and the church has not picked it back up. Now, there are some that that's not true of, and I know that we've got some Supreme Court cases, but we've got to decide what, who are you going to serve, and are you going to let your children be casualties of war? We need to understand, as Israel needed to understand and never grasp, remember the thing that broke the camel's back, the straw that broke the camel's back was in, when Judah decided to start sacrificing their children. And it would, the children were sacrificed to the god Moloch. That's what I'm talking about. God was merciful and God kept working and kept working and kept working. But when Judah said, we will offer our children to Moloch, that is when they reached the point of no return. That was, that was the word of the Lord. And we need to understand that we must take a, a stand for biblical principles again. You say, Pastor, but there's so many other things. There are so many other things. There are other things. But until we put the life of our children back where it belongs, we can't say abortion's wrong, but 
We can't say abortion ought not to be, but that is a classic sin of compromise. It's the same thing the nation did in the Dred Scott decision from the Supreme Court in the 1850s. Slavery is wrong, but, and slavery continued. And loved ones, we've got to fight abortion with the same uh, uh, energy that we fought slavery. And, and we're two-faced, we're two-faced if we're willing to champion one cause without championing the other cause. The same spirit that drove slavery and Jim Crow is the same spirit that drives uh, abortion and child abuse. And you're not ever going to feel comfortable at this church if you want to put abortion over in a comfortable little niche in the wall and say abortion's wrong, but you can say abortion's wrong and, and you can say abortion's wrong, therefore, but loved ones, we are moving into a land that we want to possess. And I don't know if the politicians will help us or hurt us. I don't know if the Supreme Court will help us or hurt us. But I do know this, if we can bring the presence of God into our nation, it may be that a change of hearts will do more than a change of law can ever do. But I'm going to tell you, you're not going to be comfortable here if what you want is abortion's wrong, but. Because as long as I have breath, it will be abortion's wrong, period. And it will be the focus of our prayer. <laughs> And we've got to decide, we've got to determine what manner we're going to live in. Um, if, if the Bible is God's word and it is, it is authoritative, it is infallible, it is inspired, if it, if it expresses the will of God and the wisdom of God and the heart of God, then we have to return as the people of God to letting that be our guiding principle we have to decide if we're going to let the Bible be an opinion or if we're going to let the Bible be the all-sufficient rule for our faith and way of life. In other words, we need to return to a biblical worldview. We need to pray for our children. I'm not fussing at our children. I'm not fussing at our SESL students or our college students. They, they are being pummeled with incredible pressure at school from the youngest grades on up through college. They are being pummeled to change their worldview. It's just like it was in the days of Daniel. I may not get to the message that I'm trying, but it's just like it was in the days of Daniel. The enemy says, we'll take you out of your setting and we will change your names, we will change your God, we will change your diet, and you will serve a new nation. And we need to pray that our children will be like Daniel and his friends that said, look, we may be locked into a circumstance we can do nothing about, but we're going to remember our old names. We're going to remember our old diet. And we're going to live the way we were taught to live. And if we don't, if you won't let us, then we're willing to suffer. But if we're not careful, loved ones, we in the name of fatigue. That's why in the book of Daniel, it says that he's trying to, the enemy's trying to wear out the saints of the most high. And we, if we're not careful, it won't be because we don't believe. But in the name of fatigue, we will give up the fight. 
And the effect of giving up the fight will be that our children are thrown to, to the wolves. And God forgive us. God forgive any generation that walks away from the fight God has given them and gives that fight to their children. We need to live our lives as parents and grandparents, and we need to win this battle. Our children will have their own fights. When Israel went into the land, they didn't conquer every inch of the land, <coughs> even though that was their goal. But the explanation was given this way. Every generation needs to fight their own battles. Every generation needs to see the hand of God fight for them. So God will allow some things to continue in order for the next generation to fight. But loved ones, I don't want my children standing by my grave and saying, Daddy, I can't believe you left this fight for us. We have to take a stand where we decide, who will I serve? Am I going to sacrifice my children? And am I going to live by a biblical worldview? That's all. That's, that's all I'm trying to say. Now, there are two dynamics. Justin gave me these. He said the Lord gave him two verses in regard to praying for the next year. And I began to pray and I realized that that was what God was putting in my heart attached to a verse. And so I've got to give Justin credit for articulating this to begin with. But he said that the Lord gave him two verses. The first is that my grace is enough for you or my grace is sufficient for you. And um, that was what God had been just burrowing into my heart. But he had been doing it from a different perspective. Um, God was saying we are about to enter a time when he will give us grace that is more than enough, that is completely adequate. See, sufficient, uh, like the King James puts it, it's the right word. King James gives it the right translation. But our modern usage of the word sufficient means that it'll be enough. Maybe close, but I think it'll be enough. You know, when Ramona, you know, gives me a recipe to look at, she says, I think this will be enough. And I said, I don't. I don't. I said, because if this is a success, we don't have enough. Because we're coming back to the pot, you know. And she says, oh, it'll, she doesn't use the word, but she says, it'll be sufficient. Everybody will be fed. But I said, you don't understand, honey. I don't want everybody fed. I want everybody hurting. <laughs> I want everybody needing to take their belt off and loosen their buckle, you see. Well, she's usually right. She usually gives in and we have leftovers, but I, you know, my, I just claim that verse that says it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. I think that's in the Bible somewhere, but you know, yeah, the chitty version, that's exactly right. Loved ones, you know what I'm saying. When God said my grace is sufficient, he was just saying, you'll get by. It'll be close, but you'll get by. I used to go to the store, auto pot store. My daddy, he, his hobby was to buy old cars, 30s and 40s and 50s, and fix them up, paint them and sell them. That's how we went on our vacations and things. And I, I always was amazed that when daddy did the work, there were parts left over. 
Now, when I do work and there are parts left over, it's because I didn't read the directions. I never throw them away because when it breaks, I'll have to go and find where this part went and put it back in. But my dad, that didn't happen with him. This is what he said. He said, this company knows that this is what you need to fix the car. They also know that you may have this problem and this problem that you didn't see till you took the part off. He said, so what this company does, and they don't, people don't do it much anymore, but he said, they put in what you need and they always have extra. He said, so when I buy from this company, he said, if it's bigger than it looks, I've got what I need. Loved ones, that's God's sufficiency. God says, I want you to understand, I'm not giving you just enough to get by. I want you to understand whatever it takes, it's in the box. Whatever it takes, it's in the box. So my grace is enough for you. My grace is sufficient. But I want you to realize, well, let me give you the other one. He said, the other thing that the Lord gave me was that I will prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And what God had been, of course, that's from the 23rd Psalm. And what God had been putting in my heart was this truth, that if we're waiting for the enemies, and I'm not talking about people. I mean, you could have a a person that's an enemy, but I'm talking about systems and ideas and doctrines, things like that. If we wait for all of our enemies to disappear, we're going to be waiting a long time. And we need to understand, instead of getting angry at people, instead of getting angry at systems, instead of getting angry at decisions, we need to understand that God says, I am able to give you a feast. I'm able to nourish you. I am able to sustain you. I will build a table when you are surrounded by your enemies. Your victory is not depending on your enemies being driven away. Your victory depends on staying in my presence. See, I know God can can take me out of, I mean, he he can get rid of every storm that presents itself in my life. But oftentimes his goal is not to get me out of the storm. His goal is to get the storm out of me. That's the challenge is to get the storm out of me. That's having a table in the presence of my enemies. I know God can destroy my enemy. The enemy that comes against me one way, God said, I can rebuke them and they'll flee before you seven ways. God knows how to get rid of my enemies, but God is after something in me so that even when I'm surrounded by my enemies, the things that threaten my existence, the ideas that threaten the church, the ideas that threaten a biblical worldview. He said, I want you to know you can sit down and I'll bring you lasagna. I'll bring you black eyed peas. I'll bring you fried chicken. I'll bring you whatever, you know, I will set a table right in the presence of your enemies. And if you want to spend your time fussing at your enemies, you can do that. Or you can sit at the table and eat. And I believe that's what he's trying to teach us. So as we approach Thanksgiving, I believe that it's time to invest Because God, we know this, and this is, we all do this most of the time. I'm not fussing at you. I just know it's possible, it's possible to know something, but not live it out all the time. Because the junk just looks so big. 
just looks so big. Uh, we've, we've learned that in regard to the things God gives us, there's three ways we can treat it. Life, life in general. Uh, uh, oh, I, I want to go there, but I don't have time. Um, we, we, the Bible tells us that the first thing we can do with life is waste it. I mean, it's, we can be like the prodigal son. We have so much and we just waste it. We waste it. And you and I all know people that you look at them and it's just a tragic loss. They've just wasted their life. Most folks, I don't think, waste their life. I think most folks, the tendency is to just spend their life. You know, whatever comes to us, we just, that's what we spend. And whatever we've got, that's what it takes. Have you ever known, have you ever noticed through your life, you got married and you were making $12,000 a year, but you made it. Then you got a raise to $18,000 a year, but what happened? It suddenly took 18000 to live. We say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm the executive. Now I make $120,000. Um, and how much does it take to live? About $120,000. That's, it, it's easy if you don't waste your life, it's easy to just spend it. It's easy to live your life in such a way that whatever you've got, the extra is consumed. I think that's what most people do. Um, but there is that place that a few people come to. Some are born that way and they're that way all the time. Others of us have to learn it. Others, it, it may not be till later in life we put two and two together and stop getting nine. You know, we put two and two and get four. But some understand how to invest their life. They say, I need this to live. I need this for my life. I need this for my family. But there's a day coming when I need to be investing. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about ministry. And so I want to talk to you not about wasting, not about spending, but I want to talk to you about investing as we walk to, to, to Thanksgiving. There are three things I think we should invest in. And that means that we pay the price to have these things in our life. That's what an investment is. You deny something the flesh wants in order to make room for something better later. Are, are you with me? Okay, here's the first thing we invest in, and uh, I will hurry. Um, the first thing that we, in, we invest in, we're going to find three things. We're going to talk about traditions. We're going to talk about your tribe. And we're going to talk about your testimony. These are three things that are worthy of investment. In other words, whatever you need to do to make sure that there's a deposit made into these areas of your life, that's an investment and it's worth doing. Here's number one. We invest in traditions. We are in the information age and there are so many things, new ways to do this, new ways to do that. You know, I, I, I was going through XM radio the other day and, and I found my Christmas station. I found my Christmas station and I was given one of the kids and I said, listen to this. And they said, oh, daddy, that's pretty. And after a few minutes, they said, Daddy, do you realize every one of these songs is from the 40s and 50s? I said, and your point is? <laughs> yes, 
Because that's my tradition. I remember in elementary school, two weeks before Christmas, every day for two weeks, they'd bring us into the assembly hall. And for, I don't know how long it was, but it was like an hour. We would sing those old Christmas songs. I loved it. That's one of the brightest, happiest memories of Christmas you know, singing those old songs. And I loved it and I loved it and I loved it. And now I, I was listening to another station and I heard a new rendition of one of my old songs. And I said, that's, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. <laughs> now I didn't say it, but I thought it. Now, you see, you know where I'm going. Traditions can be either uh, neutral or they can even be negative. Uh, the, the Jews taught the traditions of the elders instead of the word of God, and it brought them condemnation. So when I'm talking about traditions, I'm not saying that change is wrong. And I'm not saying if it's, if it's new, it's wrong. That's not the, the approach I'm trying to make. And, and, and you all know, we've all known people that try to, they're so committed to traditions that they try to give their kids 47 traditions for Thanksgiving and 92 traditions for Christmas and 16 traditions for the 4th of July. And kids get exhausted just trying to remember the traditions. We need to choose well what we do. But this is the good kind of tradition. Uh, traditions are actions that teach, inspire, and comfort. Spend your time investing in traditions that teach, inspire, and comfort. Let me put, say it another way. Teach, inspire, and comfort. That's what traditions are. They're done consistently and they're done predictably. You say, well, you know, tradition's bad. We, we've got to, you know, what is God saying for today and what have you? I, I understand that. There, there are different ways of doing things. If you were to go into Bella's children's service today, she's going to be doing things that you and I do not, we no longer have the range of motion to do. <laughs> if you go to Pastor Mike's service, that he has for our, for our high schoolers and junior high schoolers. It'll, it'll be different than what we do. It'll be different from what Bella does because the kids are at another age. You come in here. You know, there's even a difference between the, the 830 service and the 10 o'clock service. We do things differently. But I'll tell you this. Everything that we do, whether it's in the nursery or whether it's in kids' church or whether it's in union, or whether it's in 8.30 service or 10 o'clock service, every one of them have roots that grow down to a tradition. The tradition of the gospel, the tradition of biblical literacy, the tradition of holy living. And loved ones, that's why the Bible says, if the foundations are destroyed, what will the righteous do? He didn't say if the way we did things is destroyed. You know, what will the righteous do? He said, if the foundations are, things can change, but they have to grow out of the foundation. So I want you to know as we move into the next year and as we sit at the Thanksgiving table, we need to learn that um, traditions can cause our roots to go deep and our faith to reach high. Traditions teach us 
what is important. And you say, Pastor, well, what? Tri- it, that, that's why this is kind of a difficult service, kind of a difficult message, I should say. What's a tradition in one family might not be the same tradition in the other, but they have to reach down to a common core. They have to reach down to a common foundation. And we need to be sure that in the age of information, we don't let new ideas and new perspectives crowd out what has made our lives rich. And we need to invest in traditions. My pastor used to teach, uh, uh, he said the the best thing that a man can learn, this was back when I was just a, a a high schooler, and I really wanted to learn what it, what it meant to be a man. He said, you have got to be predictable. Now that's a, that's anathema today. Oh, we, you got, oh, I want to, I want to be hip. I want to be, I want to be cutting edge. I don't want anybody to know what I'm going to do. Now I feel that way sometimes, you know, sometimes I don't use a, a signal on my car because I don't think it's anybody's business where I'm going. <laughs> Certainly don't want my enemies to know where I'm going. But what my pastor used to say was right. He, he said this. He said, predictable is not boring. He explained it this way. He said, predictable doesn't mean everybody knows what daddy's going to do. See, and, and you, you know what it's like to have a predictable authority figure. No, you can't have St. Patrick's Day off. You don't know you can't go out with the kids after church. There are some, whether it's a parent or a boss, a mom or dad, or, you know, a teacher, there are plenty of people that are very predictable and you know, whatever you ask, they're just going to say no. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what my pastor was talking about. He said, being predictable is not being boring. He said, being predictable does not mean that your children say, I know what daddy's going to do. Being predictable means that your children say, I don't know what daddy's going to do, but I know that whatever he does will be right. That's predictability. And that's the power of tradition. Are you kind of understanding what I'm talking about tradition? Tradition are guidelines that are done consistently and and predictably and they teach, inspire, and they bring comfort. So invest in your traditions. And I guess the best way I can say it is this way. Don't be so quick to think that to be relevant to your children or your grandchildren or your community, you have to become something you are not. But now be sure your tradition has some reason to it. Be sure that it's a good tradition. I know that when you look at the scripture, tradition is what led Israel astray because they put tradition ahead of God's law. But when Paul was trying to deal with the problems in the Corinthian church and he gave guidelines, he said, now, if anybody wants to be contentious, he said, if you just want to keep the argument going, all I can tell you is that this is the tradition that we've lived by. And so tradition can have a good place. It can have a good perspective. The second thing that I think we ought to invest in, we ought to invest in our tribe. We ought to invest in our tribe. We are in a world right now where you can connect with the whole world and never leave your house. And In times of a pandemic, that might be good. In times of sickness, that might be good. 
But loved ones, I want to tell you something that's going to rattle some of you. We are not designed to connect with the whole world. There is the value of a tribe. Israel had the 12 tribes and people say, oh, we do that. We, have, we, we call them denominations. No, let me, let me tell you something. Denominations, and, I, and, and I, there's a good side to denominations because some denominations have risen up to counter false teaching. But denomination is based on you're not one of us and you can't. I, there are churches I could go to today that because I'm not part of that denomination, I wouldn't be allowed to receive communion. That's not Christ. That's not good. And that's not the way the tribes worked. The tribes worked the way they worked for this reason. When you study the, the philosophy of Moses, when you, when you understand what God did, God said, and each tribe represented a branch of, of Israel. I mean, they, they were related, but they were different, different families in the family. Um, and you had tribe, then you had clan, then you had household. Um, the way God organized Israel, he said, your land is very important. You, you were, you were free to marry outside of your, of your tribe. That was no problem. But then another set of laws kicked in what to do with the land, who owned the land. If it was belonged to this tribe and you marry into this tribe, you had to still follow the protocol. God understood because of the land restrictions and because of the way Israel was governed, he said, you're going to be better off in 12 units. Geographically, there were not political differences until the Civil War after the death of Solomon that split. The, they, the tribes were not to have different politics. They were not to have different religions. They were not to have different styles, but they had different interests. When they were going into the land, a couple of the tribes says, before they crossed the Jordan, they said to Moses, this, this is good land for cows. And we got cows. Let us have this land. And Moses says, well, the land we're about to go into is not good land for cows. This is, okay, you can have this land, but you have to still come over here and fight the battles and you have to still stay connected to your brothers and sisters. You see, what God was saying is this is Israel as a whole and you live your life in your household, your village, your clan, and your tribe. But there are two things that will always bring you together. I hope I'm not losing you here. Israel had to come together for warfare and for worship. God said, I want you to understand there are some things that you do when you come together. You must come together. You must come together as a whole. And it says, he said, when I call you to warfare, if a tribe in the south is attacked, the tribes in the west come to their rescue. You come together for warfare. And during the feasts, these half a dozen or so times a year, uh, and they weren't required to come together for all of them. But he says, you are to come together for worship. Loved ones, there are things that happen in a group setting that don't happen in a small setting. There is worship and warfare that takes place in a gathering on Sunday morning or Wednesday night that doesn't happen in any other setting with the effectiveness that it does in a big setting. But we need to learn the power of praying in our homes. And we need to learn the power of praying in our families. 
We need to understand that when you click on the computer and send your prayer request to Pastor Papufnik in Seattle, Washington, that's a different animal than having your family pray for you. I'm not saying that's wrong, but we have, we have gotten the mistaken notion that only the spiritual elite can pray for us. And what God is doing in our midst is he is teaching every man in this church that the greatest prayer warrior he knows is probably his wife. Peter said, treat her right, guys. Treat her right because if you don't treat her right, something horrible is going to happen. You say, oh, if I don't treat my wife right, the Republicans will get the White House. Or the Democrats will get the Senate or the Pistons will win the championship. Something bad will happen if I don't treat my wife right. You're right. Something horrible will happen. And I'll tell you exactly what he said it would be. Your prayers will be hindered. He said the greatest reason that you need to go to marital counseling, the greatest reason you need to listen to the Evanses, the greatest reason you need to get in a small group for married couples is not this, that, or the other. It's because there is a dynamo of prayer that comes from husband and wife. And if you don't have your home structured right, everything that God wants to do and that primary elementary level will be hindered. See, we we want our pastors to pray for us, and pastors should. Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against Israel by not praying for you. Paul said, I thank God that upon every remembrance of you, I pray for you. James said, there's a time when you call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint you with oil and pray, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. But loved ones, we have have come to the point where we we think the higher the rank, the better the prayer And that is not true. That is not true. God sometimes puts things in an order and a structure, but we have got to learn. I'm I'm not saying quit asking prayer from the pastors. I'm saying, look... We, if we're going to grow as a church, we've got to understand that the best place for prayer to start is with your spouse. You say, well, I'm not married or I'm a widow or a widower. Guys, I understand. I don't have to explain every contingency. Then, then move up the next rung of the ladder. I understand that. Um, you need, but you need, what I'm saying is Jesus laid down this principle. He said, if even two of you can come together in agreement. And he used that, that word agreement as the word symphuneo. And you, you already know where I'm going with this. Symphuneo, it's the, it's the Greek word that we get the English word symphony from. And when you go to a symphony, you don't go for an oboe solo. You don't go to hear, you know, Earl Scruggs' greatest banjo hits. No, when you go to the symphony, you have all of these instruments. Their music is different, but when played together, it becomes a beautiful, beautiful masterpiece. He said, I want you to understand that God wants you to pray with people and it begins with one other person. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm rattling you, but I think God is moving us to the place where we begin. Remember, we're talking about investing in tribe. That's why we're putting such an emphasis on small groups. That's why we're downplaying big gatherings. Oh, I know big gather. I'm talking about, we don't do, 
we don't do a lot of big events as a church. We have our, our gathering here, but we are finding that very, and there are exceptions, but very few significant life changes come out of big encounters where people can come in and out. That's the danger of coming to a church like this. We have people that stay out in the foyer the whole time. We have people that come late and leave early. Uh, you, you don't get away with that very easily in a small church. And the greatest danger of coming to this church is that you can be in and out with nobody speaking to you. You can hear a message or enjoy worship and leave without anybody even realizing that you've been. And we think we've done our duty, but loved ones, we are, we are paying attention to the world and neglecting Israel. Or we might be paying attention to Israel and neglecting the tribe of Judah. Or we might be paying attention to the tribe of Judah and neglecting the household, you know, of David. In other words, I think what God is doing, and I think one of the benefits we're going to find from this COVID thing, we're going to find, I tell you, we see it every week. We celebrate this in staff every week. We are finding, you know what we hear over and over again? Well, do we need to send a pastor? We hear it in one form or another over and over. Pastor, we got it. The group is taking care of this. The, the body is taking care of it. Do you know we cannot hire enough pastors to take care of every need? We, we don't have enough pastors to be first on the scene. We're not first responders. I mean, that's the way most churches are set up. The pastor is first responder. But you'll also find in those churches that they're churches of about 75 to 100 people. Because that's all a pastor can be a first responder to. But we are learning that God is wanting us to all become first responders. He's wanting us to understand that, that he is doing something in us. We're saying, God, grow us, grow us, grow us. And he is. And you know how he's doing it? By making us smaller. I'm going to preach a message about this in January in case I haven't offended everyone today. But... <laughs> I think, Jan, no, I'm, I'm teasing. I know I'm not offending you. I, I, I don't thrive on that kind of thing at all. But I, we, we've got we've to wrap our minds around this. Small groups make a big difference. Moses was trying to be the first responder to all of Israel. And his father-in-law said, this is going to kill you and frustrate them. So they divided them into 50s. And you know what they did? It, small groups. They put them in small groups and the small groups cared for each other. Now, there were times that Moses had to be brought in. There were times that another level of elders had to be brought in. I understand that. But loved ones, I don't want you to miss what God is doing. God is breaking us into smaller groups, not because he's breaking us apart, but because it's like splitting the roots of a plant that you love and you put it in two pots. Now you've got two of those plants instead of one. Am I, am I making sense here? I think I heard all yeses. Um, invest in your tribe. Learn to pray with your children. Learn to pray with your spouse. Learn, find a small group. You say, well, I don't really like small groups. There's a lot of things I don't like. I pay taxes every year and I've never gotten happy about it. Well, I, have, I, I am happy I'm able to do it, but... You understand what I'm saying? 
this is, this is a paradigm shift and, and we have got to learn that in the days ahead, we've got to invest in tradition. We've got to stop being blown about by the various winds of culture. We need to invest in our tribe. We need to be sure that our marriage is solid and it's, and it's built on Jesus. We need to be sure that our children know, our children know what we believe and why we believe it. And we have got to uh, in, invest in relationships at every level. And here's the last thing that I'm gonna stop with. We need to invest in testimonies. We, we have been so overwhelmed by what's happening around us that we have just said, hold on, just hold on, you know, till we can get through this. But we need to be able to have a testimony in the middle of this. In Revelation 12, it says they overcame him. There are three things that make us overcomers in every age, in every situation, times of prosperity and times of difficulty. Number one, first and foremost, by the blood of the lamb. We are nothing apart from the sacrifice of Jesus. We're going to heaven by what Jesus did on the cross. The blood of the lamb is the core central issue of all of our lives as children of God. The last thing he said, not only are we saved and, and live the Christian life by the blood of Jesus, the last thing he said is we have a devotion that says even if it costs us our life, we will not defect. Um, I'm, 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 I'm hurt. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm hurt by how little it's taking from some of our young people and from some of our moms and dads. I, I, again, I'm not talking about in our church. I'm talking about in Christianity, although there is some in our church. I'll tell you something else that I'm, that I'm very troubled over. Uh, those of us that uh, our gray hairs or no hairs. We, we, are, we are really rattled because we're 70 or 80 years old and we're angry that God's not healing us. And God is healing some, but loved ones, somebody needs to say this, we're going to die. Our bodies wear out. This is the final, this isn't the first enemy to be conquered. This is the last enemy to be conquered. And I don't think there's anything wrong with, oh God, heal my husband or oh God, heal my wife. Don't get me wrong. I, I don't, I don't, death is never our friend. I don't, it's, it's an enemy, but it's the last enemy. And I think one of the things that the people of God are need to, going to need to understand is that we need to let all the world around us see us walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I know that's not good Pentecostal preaching, but I think it is good biblical preaching. And, and we have got to learn to get a testimony that we're not, I mean, a, a lifestyle that we're not afraid of death. You say, pastor, you want to die? No, but I'm not afraid of death. Now I've already told the Lord, I, I don't mind dying. I, I don't want to hurt. I don't know if he's going to, I mean, I, I, I'd like to just go to sleep, not wake up. Or say amen at the pulpit and fall over here. I don't want to hurt, but I'm not afraid of dying because he said that he's with me even in the valley of the shadow of death. I, I guess what I'm saying is the generation that overcome is one that said it's all by the blood. And even if we lose our lives, we're going to hang in there. But that middle ground 
in Revelation 12 is they had a word of testimony. Now, I, I don't have time to preach these last six points. When I preached the first Thanksgiving in the wilderness, it was about these six points. But let me tell you what I want you to do over this holiday season from now to the first of the year. I want you to decide what, in, what traditions are worth investing in. And some of you just need to understand practically, you can't do everything that you want to do tradition-wise. And, and as your kids grow older, you've got to decide which, which traditions work for them and which traditions didn't. It's, there's, a, there's a gleaning of traditions. But be sure that all your traditions point to, to a foundation, which is faith in Jesus Christ. The second thing I want you to do is... You know, we ask you to give to missions. We travel around the world. We are a global community. We understand that. But I also want you to know that your first obligation is to your wife, to your husband. It's to your children, your grandchildren. You say, well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm putting God first. You know, she knew that when we married me, that, that God was first and she'd never be first. Well, let me give you the wisdom of Paul. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians and he said, some of you are wondering what to do. He said, whether you should get married, this present age that we're living in, this present distress. This is what Paul said. He said, if you can remain single, and Paul was not advocating that marriage was wrong, not by any means. In fact, he said just the opposite. He said, he said that most folks will choose to marry. He said, because it's better to marry than to burn with passion. But he said, remember this, if you stay single, then it's just you and the Lord making the decisions. And all you have to worry about is pleasing the Lord. And here's where Paul doesn't sound very spiritual. He said, but if you get married, it's not just you and the Lord. He said, you have an obligation to your spouse. You say, well, no, I, I'm, it's God first. The, the God who is first says, when there's three of us, there's three opinions. And, and loved ones, I have seen home after home wrecked in the name of serving God. When we don't understand the value of investing in our family. I've seen men do foolish things. I've seen women do foolish things saying God told me to do it. And they broke the trust and broke the heart of their spouse doing it. Loved ones, God will never call you to do something that will, that will disregard. Now, you, you say, well... What if, what if she doesn't agree or what if he doesn't agree? Then you take that to the Lord and you say, Lord, I need you to do this. But don't ruin a family in the name of obeying God. So I'm telling you, invest in your tribe. You say, well, I'm not going to, I've written my children off. They're just so rebellious. Who's going to claim them? They're your children. They're your children. How dare you write a child off for being rebellious? When your father in heaven sought you in your rebellion, you say, well, I just, they're not welcome in my home. Why? Because they're an inconvenience? I mean, now I understand there are times like a rebellious drug abuser might put other children at risk and, and you have to put something in place temporarily. I understand that. But, and, but we call it tough love. And, and, and I want to tell you, most of what we call tough love is just tough.
It's not love. It's tough. And I want to encourage you, if you have a child that's in rebellion, then do what Jesus said we should do. Leave the 99 and find that sheep that is lost and brought that sheep back. That's why God's going to bring to us people that nobody else wanted. It's because we learned that every sheep is worth saving. And we begin it with our own children. Loved ones, a lot of times we say, well, I'm just, I'm standing for righteousness. I'm not allowing them into my home. The problem is not that you're standing for righteousness. Usually the problem is that you don't want to be inconvenienced. Corey, I'm going to let you finish this if you want to come on up. But you're okay. Here's, here's what we want to do. I'm going to let Corey give the altar call. And I, he prayed such a good prayer for families. I want him to pray for our families again. We're going to open the altar for those of you who have needs. Those of you who have needs. And I realize I'm saying things that are harsh. I, you might not receive my, well, you would receive it. But I, I, don't want, I don't want to speak the things I'm speaking and then try to pray a blessing. It will sound two-faced to you. That's why I'm asking him to pray. But you say, what, 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 okay, I'm going to invest in my tribe. I'm going, to, um, I'm going to realize that it's just as important to reach my children as it is to reach the children around the world. Follow Israel's lead. There were six things that Moses said. If you don't have a testimony, over the next six weeks, you can take one a week, write a testimony around these six things. Let's thank God for his providence. He said, for the Lord your God has blessed you in everything that you've done. In other words, he says, whether it seemed right or not, the Lord has blessed you. And that's because of his providence. He says, let's thank God for his protection. He said in this Deuteronomy passage, he has watched over your every step in this great wilderness. And loved ones, we can celebrate that God either keeps us from attacks or he keeps us through attacks. Here's number three, thank God for his purposes. See, he took us through the great wilderness. You say, well, if God loves me so much, why did he take me through the wilderness? Let me just remind you about the life of Jesus. The Bible says that when Jesus went into the wilderness for those 40 days, he went, and he went into the wilderness and he learned in 40 days what Israel had to learn in 40 years. But this is what the scripture says. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. See, we, th we think the devil took us into the wilderness, but the Holy Spirit took you into the wilderness because in the wilderness, that's the only place where you learn that man does not live by bread alone. See, it's... it's he, he's going to touch you like he touched Jacob. You say, whoa, I, I want Jacob's blessing. Yeah, it's called a broken hip. And, and, and like we said, you know, it's to make us lean on him. Okay. So we thank God for his purposes, even the wilderness where we learn lessons we wouldn't learn anywhere else. Number four, when you're writing out your testimony, I, I want to thank God for his patience. He says he did this 40 years. You see, well, I, I don't like to call that patience. I like to call it faithfulness. Well, he is faithful, but listen to what was said in Acts chapter 13. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. 
See, we like to focus on God's been faithful to me during my life. He has, but I wonder, just, just ask the question, has he put up with me instead of celebrating me? So thank God for his incredible patience. Let's thank God for his presence. He says, the Lord has been with you. That means never even a single moment that we have to stand without him. He's never left us on our own. And then we thank God for his provision. He says, you have lacked nothing. Loved ones, if, you don't, if, if you'd say, I don't know how to do a testimony, just find those six things and just, just write a sentence of two, how God has shown these six things in your life. And you'll be surprised how it will change your disposition, change your attitude. Make plans to make amends with members of your tribe that you have written off. Now, again, there's balance. You know, if you have a, an uncle that raped you, you don't have to become friends with that uncle. That's not what I'm talking about. But we have drawn the line in, in the wrong places. And we have, we have you know, I, I'm not interested in somebody saying, well, I, I give to missions and I love the world and I just pray for the whole world every day when you don't pray for your own family doesn't impress me. You don't visit your destitute parents. Doesn't impress me. And then we're going to say we're going to let our traditions go deep. Corey's going to tell you how to come for prayer. He's going to uh, pray for our families. He's going to let you know how you can find Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And uh, Corey, just calm down what I've done here. Just calm down.